COVID-19 has changed the way we live and how we die. No family should have to tell their loved one goodbye through a computer. The pandemic has changed interaction at the bedside, our rituals of mourning, and how we process loss. Today, grief in the time of COVID on the Hear Me Now podcast from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Hi, I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for spending time with us today. What began as an isolated outbreak of a previously unknown coronavirus has, in just a matter of months, changed how life is lived on the planet. A new type of coronavirus has emerged from the city of Wuhan in China. Within weeks, it has spread to I'm declaring countries. a public health emergency of international concern over the global outbreak of novel coronavirus. People have. Wait, yeah. it sounds right now like it's contained more or less in Asia, but what's the worry here? Tonight, and the CDC point, says the infected passenger passed through busy SeaTac Airport in Seattle, the first confirmed U.S. case of the contagious coronavirus. Now At this moment, Washington. we have 22 patients in the United States currently that have coronavirus. Unfortunately, one person passed away overnight. All of Italy, a country of 60 million people, is now effectively a red zone. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. Their unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn is filled with people who are critically ill from COVID-19. Right now we have 22, and I think we're expecting two more. Sir, uh, you said in an interview this morning on the coronavirus, this thing's going away. It's going away, no, it'll go away, like things go away, absolutely. It's uh, no question in my mind, it will go away, please go ahead. Uh, I do not believe it would disappear because it's such a highly transmissible virus. It is unlikely that it's going to disappear. Stunning number, 150,000, 150,000 mothers, fathers, sons, and daughters, grandparents and friends now lost to the coronavirus in the United States in five months. As this pandemic moves through our communities, it's leaving in its wake huge social change, most of it unwelcomed. We aren't touching one another. We're not spending time in close proximity to our friends. Many of us have stopped eating in restaurants or getting together in bars. Our schools have new rules. So do small businesses. Professional sports have all changed. Churches have new rules. And so do hospitals. Certainly one of the hardest rules to live with in this time of COVID has been the prohibition or the limit on hospital visits. And for no one has that been harder than the families of patients who are at the end of their lives. In early July, Michael Dansby was admitted to a hospital in Oklahoma. He had COVID-19 and his condition worsened. His family was kept from his bedside and they were only able to say goodbye by Zoom. Lacey Bradley is Michael's daughter. You do not want to say goodbye to your family member like this. No one should have to lay in a hospital bed alone and die. No one. On today's program, we want to talk about ways the pandemic has had an impact on our grieving. And I'm pleased to welcome two people with great insight and uh, experience to our microphones. The Reverend Denise Hess 
is the executive director of the Supportive Care Coalition, which is a partnership of Catholic health ministries advancing excellence in palliative care through advocacy, education, and the integration of Catholic bioethics in uh, palliative care practice. Denise, I'm glad to see you today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. And also with us is Dr. Ira Bayak, leading palliative care physician, author, and public advocate for improving care for people at all ages and all stages of life. He's the founder and chief medical officer of the Providence Institute for Human Caring, based in the Los Angeles area. The Institute advances efforts to measure, monitor, improve, and expand models of highly personalized care. Ira's books include Dying Well, The Four Things That Matter Most, and The Best Care Possible. Ira, welcome. Thanks very much. Delighted to be here. Nice to see you, Denise. Nice to see you too, Ira. Let's start with stories just like the one in Oklahoma, which has been repeated over and over across the country. How important is it for seriously ill people to have their loved ones at their bedside? You know, human connection is essential to human well-being. And so it's very important. Part of what we do as caregivers is to strive to bring people together uh, physically, you know, personally, if possible, but uh, in all ways uh, that we can, uh, including uh, from a distance uh, when uh, being together in person is impossible. This COVID pandemic has created physical syndromes that are almost diabolically designed to separate people uh, physically, certainly, uh, because of the shortness of breath and the, and the remarkable infectivity of this uh, virus. As soon as people uh, uh, enter an emergency department, they are physically separated from those they love. And sometimes they can never see those people in person again uh, for their own safety, the safety of the families and the, um, and the safety of the professional caregivers who are, uh, who are working to save their lives. Mm-hmm. Agreed. That, that drive, that intrinsic uh, need within all of us as human beings for connection, for healing through connection is so strong and, and equally strong for the healthcare professionals working, caring for patients right now during this pandemic. They too uh, sense the lack, the absence of the family members, the loved ones at the bedside. And that is morally distressing for them. Yet at the same time, um, protective for them uh, without that distance right now without that ability to conserve PPE, to limit um, the infection exposure that they themselves are absorbing, they would be putting them, their own selves and their families at greater risk too. So it's, it's this mutual <laughs> affirmation that connection is necessary in the midst of this rock and a hard place moment where we absolutely, for the betterment of all parties involved, need to limit, curtail uh, the extent of these in-person connections. So very morally distressing for everyone involved. You know, I was uh, part of creating the uh, the Providence um, 
uh, rules around uh, visitation and the limitations of visitation during uh, the COVID pandemic. And it, it was wrenching. It was heart wrenching to to write these rules down. And um, despite the fact that I've spent the majority of my career uh, writing and advocating to for ways of bringing people to connect uh, to, together, the, those sacred connections and uh, issues of life completion and all of the stuff that hopefully we'll get to talk about. Um, I found myself uh, on the very conservative side, wanting to be very strict in terms of those separations because, you know, life is precious and uh, and this uh, this virus is utterly deadly. Uh, and, and so, you know, um, like it or not, mostly hating it, uh, we, uh, for the sake of uh, pr preserving human life, uh, we found ourselves needing to put in place these uh, really um, terribly strict uh, restrictions. I think back uh, on your first book, Ira, and the, there are a couple ideas that persist in my memory. And one of them is uh, the phrase, a clean, dry bed. Mm -hmm. um, being a sort of benchmark and a goal. And I think the, the notion of, of not dying alone uh, is, is the other one. And this just seems to be such a fundamental repudiation of that fundamental goal. Well, it's certainly a remarkable challenge, uh, you know, and, it, and, and um, in its extent, uh, it, it, it's certainly unprecedented in, in my life and in modern times. I will say, however, that um, uh, it's not um, unusual to to try to be bringing uh, people together across distances. Uh, in my experience, having practiced in places like Missoula, Montana, and and uh, Hanover, New Hampshire, and you know rural places where uh, uh, families were often distant, and we'd be trying to make connections with with families across many states. So some of this has some precedent in our practice. I, what is un, unprecedented is um, among the things that are unprecedented uh, is the uh, assault uh, uh, on the caregiving experience as professionals. And Denise, you you referenced that. Um, you know, part of our uh, satisfaction as professionals is. Uh, being in the intensely privileged position of of uh, witnessing and, and participating in these intimate times in the lives of the people we serve. And it is part of the professional satisfaction to bring people together and to preserve and foster some sense of well-being, uh, even in these terribly uh, sad and, 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 you know, inherently tragic times. In this situation, uh, the barriers placed uh, in front of us in meeting our own internal standards of care, our own aspirations of bringing people together and fostering well-being have been remarkable. And and uh, uh, Denise accurately named it, it. This is a source of moral distress, and not because of anybody's Ill, Ill intention, but because we are unable to meet our own internal standards, our own expectations of what really excellent care looks like again and again and again. We're learning a lot, I have to say. Mm -hmm. um, we're seeing the world through this 2020 vision of, uh, of COVID, where COVID has stripped away the filters and shown us with, with terrible clarity uh, what matters most to the human condition. Mm -hmm. Denise, uh, I, I wonder, 
in addition to being uh, a reverend and remarkable spiritual counselor and the CEO of the Supportive Care Coalition, um, you are, of course, uh, a daughter. And, uh, and I know and I, that your father has died during this time of COVID. Um, and I wonder if you'd be willing to share with us what your experience, your family's experience was uh, during your father's illness and dying. Yeah, thank you, Ira, and thank you for your support um, through that difficult time with our family. Um, you know, it was one of those experiences that, as a healthcare professional, it, it changes you for life because you have, I and many of us have spent the bulk of our time on the professional side of things. So, like Ira was just saying, you know, we we participate in making policies, restricting visitation, um, outlining policies and protocols about how to handle this pandemic. And then suddenly I found myself on the other side. Suddenly my own father was in an ICU and my family and I were not able to do what every cell in your body screams that you must do, which is get in your car, drive as fast as you can and get to his side and hold his hand and talk to him in your voice. And so every, every part of you is screaming to do that and you can't. And you're, I were, we were entirely reliant upon the healthcare team to, in the midst of uh, a huge surge, uh, this was happening in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, in the midst of a huge surge, you're asking them, uh, can you please take the iPad in just one more time? Can you can you hold up the phone? And, and knowing every time you ask that, that I was asking someone to spend probably 15 to 20 minutes donning highly limited um, PPE. Um, I was taking them away from other patients and other families who were also wanting to have iPad time um, <clears throat> updates, um, patient care. And, and I suddenly found myself living in that rock and a hard place of every part of me as a daughter wanted, I wanted someone in that room 24 hours a day with an iPad so I could talk to him, knowing the realities uh, and the limited resources that that, that could never, ever um, be possible. So it's, um, it's a very, very, very difficult, and I, Ira, I'm going to use your word a lot, tragic tragic, really heartbreaking situation on both sides. Uh, obviously difficult for myself and my family, but but I would not um, underestimate the difficulty that, that his nurses were experiencing too in having to hold up that iPad, listening to me and my family weeping on the other side and talking to my dad. Um, we aren't usually in a kind of public, more public setting when we have those those very intimate interactions with our loved ones. And suddenly healthcare professionals are being ushered into an inner sanctum of sorts of family, um, very private and intimate moments. Wow. How, how is your family doing? How are you, how are you personally doing with this? We're, we're making our way um, one step at a time. I, I know we hope to talk some about, about grief and, and again, this this experience uh, has changed and informed my thoughts and feelings about grief. Uh, yeah. Denise, do you think the 
family separation that so many families are experiencing will have an impact on the way they grieve uh, a loss. Absolutely. Absolutely. As Ira knows, as you know from reading Ira's books, as we all know from being human beings, there again is this deep instinctual impulse within each of us to be present, physically present with each other at these times of great vulnerability, of liminal spaces, of transition. And when you can't do that, um, there is even, again, speaking personally, there is um, a missing bookend of that experience for me. Um, there is one half of a parenthesis for me, um, because although we were at the very end able to be in the room with my dad um, as he did die in the ICU, um, it was it was not not the same because it felt like at that moment we were trying to catch up. We were trying to, in a very um, compressed way, fit in. Uh, weeks worth of things that we wanted to say to him all along. Um, similarly, we will never forget, it will be imprinted in all of our minds forever that as we were holding my dad's hand, kissing his forehead, we were doing so through all kinds of masks and gear and PPE. And again, uh, that truncates, um, that abbreviates, that um, amputates, if you will, some of those um, intimate moments that are so helpful for closure. Um, if there is such a thing as closure, um, which I'm not sure I believe in, but it, it <clears throat> that experience um, feels unfinished now. This is, you know, it's remarkable. And yet I've heard these statements before when people die suddenly, for for instance, they have a big stroke, uh, or uh, you know the bike accident where where um, Mel bled into his head uh, um, despite wearing a helmet, flown to the hospital, never never again to be conscious. Family even at his side, knowing that um, their communication had ended in many regards. They, they could say those things, but it felt unfinished. So much left unsaid, um, mm -hmm. unrequited. I love your, mm -hmm. that, that sense of that open parenthesis. Um, and you know, it's now it's happening, uh, so often, uh, I, I keep holding myself back from, from going to the cultural here, but, you know, culturally now uh, we can no longer avoid some of the, some of the elemental facts of the human condition uh, that we matter to one another first and foremost, that we will lose one another inevitably, that I will die before you or you will die before me. That unless we are scrupulous in 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 our in our relational well-being, there will be things left unsaid. And I think as caregivers, as as clinicians, um, you and you said it so powerfully. Now there's no there's no way to escape being part of those intimate moments in people's lives. You can't go down the hall and see another patient or, you know, go on break or you're needed to be in the room, holding the phone, holding the iPad, witnessing 
um, facilitating those utterly intimate, sacred conversations or communications. Oh my heavens, I think, I hope that it changes healthcare in a way that forces us to face the, the fact within the, the, the medical that this is inherently human, mm -hmm. sacred, mm -hmm. that, that, that we can no longer objectify people as patients. Mm -hmm. They are us, we are them, we are all in this together. Yes, yes. I did not experience <clears throat> a medical event when my father died. Mm -hmm. I experienced a profoundly human and personal event. Didn't matter that there were tubes and, and machines around. Um, that all fades away. <clears throat> it was about my dad. My heart goes out to you. I, you, you know, I've learned so much from you over the years, Denise, um, and and now I'm still learning from you in in ways that, you know, are unwanted but so worthwhile. Thank you. Thanks for Thank sharing you. all that. Thank you. You're this pandemic is causing multiple losses for all of us. It's not just in the medical realm, it's causing a loss of employment, of, well, of uh, perceived futures, of social interaction, of uh, government function. And I'm wondering what the implication is for all of us grieving in some way all the time. We're all mourning something. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I can tell you what I hope for. Someone said to me, you know, um, in the in, in the COVID pandemic, um, uh, one goes into a funk and we either become uh, uh, a chunk, a monk, a drunk or a hunk. You know, there are various ways to to respond to this uh, horrible situation. Um, and we are grieving. And, and one of the things that I think is, is striking about grief is that there's this sense of unreality, this unbelievable surrealistic sense that, uh, it, you know, every time I've been in grief, it's like this can't be happening. How, how, could, how can this be happening? And, I, and now we're living through that. The best way through this from, for me, and I, I think – it has general relevance is to keep our hearts open, to meet this tragedy to the extent that we can uh, together uh, with an open heart, with love. Uh, one of my sort of self care mantras that I say to myself many times a day is Ira, you know, keep your heart open. Remember to breathe. I would not characterize our, society as high on the grief fluency scale. In fact, I would put us kind of down toward the bottom. Um, we don't have the words often to describe, to name, to identify this uniquely strange cocktail of emotions that we call grief and bereavement. 
And so in lieu of that, um, we often go down some kind of grief dead ends, if you will. Um, one of the most common, and I find myself doing this too, is the comparison, you know, kind of whose loss is more lossy, <laughs> whose loss is harder, whose loss is worse. Um, each loss is a loss, each loss. Um, losses are not to be compared. Each loss is to be grieved. Grieving doesn't mean fixing. Grief isn't a problem. Grief is something to be lived with, breathed into, as Iris said, um, as a potential opportunity for greater softness and openness of heart. But how often um, do we as grievers right now feel that, um, that affirmation, that permission, that invitation? It's rare. It's rare. And then, and then there's all those kinds of um, stereotypes that, that grief means you're crying all the time. No. Uh, my main grief reaction uh, during my fa father's sickness and death was nearly uncontrollable rage. That was grief for me at that moment. Um, yeah, did sadness bubble up from time to time? Of course. Is shock still the predominant feeling, as Ira talked about, because we did have one of those completely unexpected deaths? Absolutely. Disbelief? Yes. Um, bargaining? Sure. I mean, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was absolutely on to something, although, you know, she and her colleagues would continue to remind us that this grief is so messy. It's not linear. Uh, it's not trackable. It's not nice, neat stages. It's, it's barely even a spiral. <laughs> um, but you do feel like you revisit the same places over and over and over again. And that's, that is what it is. And it's, it's so okay. And, and, and it's, I'm hopeful that collectively we're going through this, what is for many, many would call a trauma. Many would call a collective loss, a cumulative collective loss. I'm so hopeful that this will open up spaces and places where, where we get a little bit more fluent in the language of grief. I would love to see that happen. That's the Reverend Denise Hess from the Supportive Care Coalition. And also with us is Dr. Ira Bayak from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. We'll be back with more of our conversation in just a minute. Stay with us.
listening to the Villanova University pastoral musicians performing Oh God Beyond All Praising, the Michael Perry hymn sung to the tune of Gustav Holst's great Jupiter theme. Um, you know, one of the losses of this pandemic has been that choral music has disappeared from our rituals. Hmm. It has been pointed to, in fact, as being especially dangerous, both for members of choirs and for congregations. And I'm thinking about funerals, Denise, and how when families sit down to plan a memorial, it's often one of the most concrete tasks that they have before them mm -hmm. to pick music. Mm -hmm. And it strikes me that the fact that families are not getting together and singing is a real loss. Absolutely. Absolutely. So much so. And it is to coin a different uh, term from a different field, but the planning, a well done memorial service, um, which as a reverend, I've had the opportunity to be a part of many. You spend a couple hours as a family just telling the story, the story of what just happened, and then the story, the life story of everything that just happened. And then the music, the readings, the do we have open mic or not open mic? Because you know how Uncle Ralph is really <laughs> off the rails and he drinks too much at all of these events. Bless that, his heart. It all, yeah, bless his heart. It all serves as almost a critical incident debriefing, if you will, right? It, it's a very important processing moment, again, in this journey, this, this lifelong process of grieving, of adjusting to the person that was there, is there no more. And so when you can't do that, um, when you can't do that in person, when you do do that, but it's modified. So a few people are maybe together in person and then everybody else is watching on Zoom, which many folks are doing. Uh, again, not the same, not the same. Is it enough and sufficient and okay for now to do a Zoom memorial, a Zoom service? Absolutely, but again, I think we fool ourselves if we imagine that that will be the new preferred way once these restrictions are lifted, once people can come back together, you can bet um, there are going to be gatherings backlogged uh, for quite some time that will be top of the list for so many. And, and again, just referring to my own personal experience and the open parenthesis, we have not been able to have anything yet for my dad. Um, we have actually chosen not to have anything yet for my dad. Because again, um, most of my family happens to reside in Arizona at the time that we are speaking. Today, Arizona is not a place where anyone should be gathering, even with masks. And so all of that is on hold. All of that is that, that one unresolved note, uh, the note before the last note, the penultimate note of that musical score that is being held and held and held. We don't know for how long, when we will get that, that final uh, resolve, that end of his music that he made on earth. It's still coming. That was so eloquent. Uh, I can only say that uh, I resonate with that in, in my own uh, um, 
personal and professional lives. Um, uh, I, in my own f uh, circle of friends and family, there's been deaths in the last few months and, and people can't sit Shiva. Uh, you know, in addition to not having funerals or, or memorial services and the, and the lack of singing, there's been the lack of being able to break bread together, which in, you know, in my tradition is a big deal, uh, gathering to eat together and but also to reminisce and to tell those stories to to bring some, you know, continuity to the narratives that are so much part of our lives. Um, you know, we are meaning makers. And, and, and that phrase is, is so, so important because um, I think there's this, this notion that somehow in ritual and tradition, we find meaning. No, more accurately, we make meaning. We invest these experiences in meaning. There's a, there's a certain um, healthy defiance in coming together and saying, you know, uh, in the face of death and this unspeakable, un surrealistic loss, that we matter to one another. We are going to, to state it clearly that this, that your father mattered to you, to all of you, that, that, that we matter to one another and that even the force majeure cannot take that from us. Mm -hmm. You know, and what we're really talking about, as I listen to you, Ira, is the human need and the power of, of ritual. And when I say ritual, I mean it in the broadest, most expansive yeah. sense of the word. So ritual is crossing yourself. Ritual is going to CrossFit gym, right? They're both rituals that that have this ability to put what's on our insides on the outside. I think of ritual as just all the myriad numbers of ways that we as human beings enact and embody these internal states that we really don't have words for. And being unable to enact and embody and participate. And again, a lot of rituals, not all, happen collectively because the, the power of the ritual is that it's co-witnessed, it's co-participated in. And so again, to not have access to yeah. all of that right now is yet another loss, another mm -hmm. thing we're all grieving from high school graduations to, to deaths, from uh, no prom to I lost my job. All of those things, normally those losses uh, and those events have rituals um, packed around them like like wonderful, soft, cushiony cotton that helps ease us through a, the transition from one thing to another. I, I have a question I, I'd love to get your thoughts on. I, I've been pondering there during this time, uh, Denise, and it is that this pandemic, but death and loss in general, um, forces us to face the imperfections of life. Uh, you know, the narratives we tell each other about our lives, our family, the world uh, it has a certain polish about it, um, mm -hmm. our relationships. And now there's this starkness of the imperfection of life. Uh, uh, my grandchildren and my two grandsons are now growing up, uh, going going through a, a critical time in their development in, in a way that is not what any of us 
would hope for them. It's imperfect. Um, you know, we're not able to do the rituals, all of that. And and where I'm getting to, and the and the fallibilities of our relationships, the the imperfections of our relationships, and therefore uh, the imperfections that we have to confront within ourselves, all of which are now in high contrast, we're hard to avoid. Mm-hmm. And what I'm getting to is, I, I that causes me to then ponder the role and the potential value of forgiveness and mm-hmm. and practicing forgiveness. I guess for our own infallibility and the infallibility of our relationships, but also of the world kind of that, it that it's not that fairy tale world that we all have come to expect somehow. Mm-hmm. I love your mm-hmm. thoughts on any of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and for that word forgiveness, I, I could also see substituting, um, acceptance of what is, if we're thinking maybe more from a Buddhist uh, persuasion. I could also see um, compassion um, substituting for that word forgiveness too. Um, All of those, those senses of the word of just recognizing and being with um, and acknowledging the, the tragic that is threaded throughout all of our lives. I even think of um, the psalmist um, from the Hebrew scriptures that talks about how we as human beings are, we're, we're lower than the angels, but we're above the animals. And I think Ernst Becker picks up that theme so well in his really famous book, Denial of Death, you know, where, where as human beings, we are in this moment being called to live in that paradoxical place of imperfection. Um, we're not angels. Hopefully, most of the time, we're not animals in the sense of uh, no, no, no diss against animals, but uh, you know, in the sense of following our more animalistic or uh, tendencies. But we we live in that that paradoxical place of uniquely uh, being able to see what could be um, the beauty that does break in from time to time, yet hopefully uh, opening our eyes to all the ways the world is not what it can and very much should be. So living in that gap, living in that that tension, that paradox place of, of knowing and hoping and wishing for more and fighting for change, yet accepting the reality of what is, is, is the real invitation of this pandemic moment, I think, from an existential and spiritual point of view. You know, there's also, uh, in a sense, an uh, invitation to, to fully participate in the human experience that I'm feeling. Yes. Um, I'm keenly aware, as a gay man, that this is not the first viral outbreak that my community has lived through and grown from. But I'm also aware as a privileged uh, American that this is the first respiratory illness that I've really been exposed to that's this dangerous. Whereas people in Asia and Africa Mm -hmm. have gone through this many times before. Absolutely. And, And suddenly I feel a kinship that I've never felt this strongly. Exactly. Um, 
If we ever doubted we were all connected before, as many of our spiritual and religious traditions tell us that we are, uh, we have an opportunity to see that writ large right now in ways that have never been possible before. Yeah. And if we add into that, and I know we don't need to go, this is probably a topic for another podcast coming in the future, but the, the poly pandemics. So we are also having um, our eyes opened, many for the first time, some an ongoing awakening to the systemic racial uh, injustices uh, that have been acting as a silent, less acknowledged, equally, maybe more deadly pandemic amongst us for centuries. It was the topic of our very first podcast. Ah, okay. <laughs> Excellent. Good to know. I am so grateful for the two of you being here. Um, this is uh, a topic that I think we're going to return to. And I hope, uh, I hope we can call on you again. It's been a privilege and pleasure. Thank you both. Denise Hess is the executive director of the Supportive Care Coalition a partnership of Catholic Health Ministries, Advancing Excellence in Palliative Care. Dr. Ira Bayak is the author of Dying Well, The Four Things That Matter Most, and The Best Care Possible. Ira is the founder and chief medical officer of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring, and we'd love to hear from listeners. You can write to us at humancaring@providence.org. Our stories are edited by Allison Jakes and Mike Addis and produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. We have help from Tressa Gerke, Aaron Wesson, Heather Martin, and Amanda Schwartz. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. Visit us on the web at instituteforhumancaring.org. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. I'm Sean Collins, inviting you to join us for the next Hear Me Now podcast. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your audio on demand. Thanks for listening. Be well.